Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Heavenly Father, you did not hold back your son, but you sent him as a savior, as a ransom, as a payment for our sins, because we could not earn our way into relationship with you. We could not work our way through good deeds, through religious activity, through our own devotion, our own purity, or holiness, or righteousness. But we all have fallen short and fallen of the glory of God. Whether we all are sinners in need of a Savior, and Jesus has come to our rescue, and he's come to be our King. Father, would you, would you move in our hearts? Stir us up by your love and by your grace that we might devote ourselves to you more fully, that we might see you more clearly, that we might portray you to our city more, uh, more authentically. Father, would you move in us? Would you move in our city to draw people to yourself, that they might know your goodness and your beauty? Father, we pray this through your Son, Jesus, and by your Holy Spirit. Amen. We are in the book of 1 Timothy. If you've got your Bible, I'd love for you to turn there. And we're working our way through this series. The last few weeks, we've been looking at how sound doctrine or sound theology or uh, kind of the, the dogma or belief of the church serves as guardrails to keep us on the road to joy, freedom, grace, goodness, and eternal life. And so we, we want to be a people who's devoted to sound teaching because there are also, as we see in, in, in 1 Timothy 1, false teachers who want to disrupt that, who want to intervene in that, who want to get in the way of all the goodness that God wants to do in our lives. And so in many ways, as we looked at chapter one, we were talking about the importance of the gospel of grace, of what it means to, to fight for the truth, to hold fast to that which is, is true and that which we believe, and, and to reject false teaching. And in some ways, it's interesting because Paul in chapter one is kind of fixated on the gospel. He's fixated on this kind of exclusive message that Christ came to save sinners and there's only one way of salvation and there's ways that can lead us astray. In fact, verse three says, command them not to teach any other doctrine. Now that's sort of an exclusive statement, right? Like there's an acceptable doctrine and then there's doctrine that's not to be taught and we're to command them not to lead us astray from that. Then in verse 17, you also see a similar, or I'm sorry, 19, he says, by rejecting this truth, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. And then Paul goes so far as to kick two guys out of the church because he's, they're leading people astray. And that's kind of a tough message. And you see this message that Paul says of fight the good warfare, fight the good fight, that we're to exclusively kind of lean into the truth and fight for that which is right. Now, here's the question as we get to chapter two, to what end? Like, what, what are we supposed to do with this glorious treasure of the gospel that we've fought over, that we've guarded, that we've protected, that we've hoarded and made our own? What is it we're supposed to do with it? What gets the gospel if we don't do anything with it? See, what I know is I've got a whole lot of tools in my garage, and they're really shiny because they don't get used. And they're really worthless to me. And what Paul's going to say is the, the gospel's great if you have it, if you possess it, if you own it, but you're meant to do something with it. And so in a sense, what's the offense? 
that we're supposed to execute in the plan of God in terms of making a difference in our world. So that's where we come as we get to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going to just read the first seven verses. Read with me. 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it pleases the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And so Paul, as he begins uh, this, uh, this passage, uh, I want to jump down to actually verse 7, which may seem like a strange place to start. We're going to start at the end of the passage, and we're going to go back and build Paul's argument. Uh, in verse 7, Paul talks about his own mission. And, and that mission, which he's been set apart as an apostle, as a preacher, as a teacher to the Gentiles, he pass, he's passing down to Timothy, who's a pastor. And Paul's placed Timothy as pastor over this church in Ephesus. And he tells, he tells Timothy as the pastor, he says, I want you to teach the things I taught you to faithful men who will teach others also, who will teach others also, who will teach others also. So this is a message that's supposed to be passed down. It gets passed down actually all the way to us. That's God's plan for the world, that Timothy's message, or Paul's message gets passed down to others, which gets passed down through history and continues the mission of God in the world. But you notice Paul says, I was appointed. Uh, to be appointed to something means you didn't choose it. You didn't run for office. He didn't, he didn't go out and lobby for this, but God said, Paul, I want you to go do this. He was appointed and commanded to go do this mission that he was given as a preacher, an apostle, a teacher. Now, here's, here's what I realized. Most, most preachers are really good at trying to get the big event. Like what, what, what the American church is really good at is gathering a crowd, at creating a big experience, at creating a room full of people where there's energy and excitement and all kinds of things. But it's fascinating to me because that's not where Paul starts. Paul's actually going to build a logical argument. He's going to say, first of all, pray. Then build a godly presence in the midst of the city and the people in which you live. Uh, then build on the foundation of the gospel and the message that I've given, uh, the relationships that you have there, then begin to preach and share the, share the message. So do you notice also in, in verse seven, Paul says that he was a teacher to whom? Talk back to me. Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? The Gentiles are those that are outside of the covenant family of Judaism at that time. So they would have looked in that world, oftentimes the Gentiles were those that were kind of looked down upon. They were looked as outsiders. It was kind of like, man, this religious thing is ours in, in the Jewish nation and the people and the descendants of, uh, of Moses and, and Abraham and all the descendants that were there. And they oftentimes looked down on those who were outside the covenant. So you had kind of the people that trusted the, the children of Abraham and then you had everyone else. The Gentiles were everyone else. And Paul says, my mission is to the everyone else's of the world, to the outsiders, to those who are, who are apparently outside of things. And yet, let's go back and look. Here's what I want you to notice. If you look at these verses and think about these, did you notice one word that was repeated over and over in the, in the seven verses we read? What is it? All. 
Notice how many times the word all shows up. He says, one, first of all, but then he says that we're to pray for all people. We're to pray for all who are in high places, that God desires all to be saved and that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for what? All, all people. There's this breadth of what he's doing. There's a wideness to the, to the mercy of God and to the mission of God and what he's doing. And this is what I think is important for us to understand because as much as in chapter one, we were fighting over the truth of the gospel and this exclusive message that there's only one way of salvation. And as much as essential as that is, there's also a wideness that God desires all people to be saved. There's a compassion that's there. As one preacher said, before God can reach my mouth and my feet to send me and and have me proclaim the gospel, God has to reach my tear ducts. God's got to somehow break our heart for those that are around us. Matthew chapter nine, let's talk Jesus. And it says, Jesus looked out on the crowds as he's up on a hill looking over a city, he looked out on the crowds. It says he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looked out on people and he saw people who were in danger. He saw people whose lives were threatened, whose lives were troubled. And it says that he looked out on them and had what? Compassion. The word compassion means that he was moved in his innards or his bowels. That he was stirred to the the core of his being with passion with these people, for these people, towards these people. Friends, this is not something the church has done very well. So often we move in one extreme or the other. Either we acquiesce and become just like the world and there's no distinction to us, or we completely pull out and we condemn the world and look down on the world and hate the world and fear the world and we isolate ourselves from the world. But you look at what the scriptures call us to do and what we're gonna see is this is, the, this is gonna be the key of, the fight, of fighting the good fight. How do we hold fast to the truth of the gospel and also hold fast to the compassion of the gospel so that we look like Jesus to our city around us. But the friends, uh, the church doesn't do this very well. Think of Jonah. Did Jonah want to go to Nineveh? No, Jonah hated going to Nineveh. Why? Because he didn't want to go. He was hacked off. He did not want to offer a message of hope to people that he considered his enemies. To those who were outside of his way of life, to those who were outside of his morality, to those who were outside of his politics and his, his, his way of seeing the world, to those who were outside of his community and his group, he, he, he despised them and he didn't want to go. And so when, when he went, he begrudgingly went only because God forced his hand and made him do so. But even then he resented and hated the people that were there. So come to the end of the story of Jonah, what happens? You find him outside on a hill and as he's out there on a hill, a little tree grows up and gives him shade and he sits down underneath the shade and goes, man, this is pretty nice. It's nice that God gave me shade from the heat. And he's waiting on the hill, hoping that God's condemnation and God's judgment is going to fall upon the city. So he sits out there and watches, thinking, I hope, I hope God burns them up. I hope God fries that city. I hope God takes that city out. And God comes and says, who are you? You did nothing to earn the shade. You did nothing. It was my grace, my love, my care for you that put shade up underneath the judgment of the heat for you. Who are you to deny it for others? It's a message that I think we need to hear. It's interesting too, in the New Testament, Peter, when he is told to go to Cornelius and Cornelius has a vision about uh, really how they're to, the, some of the Old Testament law no longer applies and they're able to eat other foods and do other things. And really what it's saying is you can, that the, the, the God has grace for the Gentiles and the Gentiles can come in and be a part of the family of God as well. And Peter doesn't want to go to Cornelius because he'd rather keep things the way 
they were. You know, Paul, when he began his mission, actually uh, is trying to go to the Gentiles and feels called there. He actually has to go back to Jerusalem, meet with the Jerusalem council, these kind of re- uh, religious rulers that were there to get permission to go forward in his mission because they were tentative about this as well. But it's an, honestly, it's a strange thing to keep to yourself, right? If the gospel message is you can't save yourself, you can do nothing to earn salvation, but it, it came to you as a free gift from God that while you were one of those that, were, that should have been outside of God's family, God has brought you in and called you friends. He's, he's adopted you and called you sons and daughters. And it's, all that has happened through no effort or, or works or, or, or beauty or goodness or intelligence of your own, but it's a free gift from God. Why does it make sense for us to withhold a free gift from others? And yet, so often we do. But you see this enormous compassion throughout, uh, throughout, uh, for all people throughout the whole New Testament. Let me just give you a couple of verses. First uh, Corinthians 9, Paul says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Second Corinthians 5.19, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and where? To the ends of the earth. Romans 10, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, how's your compassion for our city? How's your compassion for those around us? Jesus said, come to me, those who are weary and heavy laden. How many people in our world are are weary and heavy laden? All of them. How many are hungry for bread they they cannot afford to buy? All of them. How many of uh, the people in our world are thirsty for water that forever satisfies all of them? How many of the people in our world need their sins to be separated as far as the east is from the west, all of them. How many people in the world need to know God who is Abba, Father, that they can speak to as though they're family? All of them. Our world's full of people that need to know a Savior. They need to know a God that loves them. And Christ's bowels, when he looked out on them, were moved with compassion. Friends, what stirs you on the inside? Are your guts moved with compassion for our world? Are they really? I think so, time, so many times it's easy just to get our head down and stay focused on the things we have in front of us and not see the things that are around here. But I think the question that we need to ask ourselves is why are we left here? Like what, what, what is it we're to, we're to do here on this planet Why we're here? Because one day we're, we're gonna go to heaven, right? And there's gonna be a new heavens and a new earth and there's gonna be a, a new creation that we get to enjoy and you're, you're gonna run better and be healthier when you get to the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, the food's gonna taste better in the new heavens and the new earth. You're gonna connect with one another because there's no more sin. So you husbands and wives that butt heads sometimes, like that's gonna be better in heaven. You're gonna enjoy your relationship with God more fully in heaven. You're gonna know the truth of, of, of everything that the scriptures teach and who God is and his love for you. You're gonna know that better in heaven. What is it you can't do in, uh, on earth, uh, in heaven that you can do right now? You can share the good news with the people in our world. It's the one thing that you, that you can't do better later on, but this is our one shot to make a difference in the lives of others. 
There's a story that uh, I heard a pastor tell one time of evangelist Dwight Moody, and he was talking to a guy who uh, saw him on a train as he was traveling. So this is clearly another time and era. Uh, but about 100 years ago, I was traveling on a train, and uh, this guy came up to him and said, hey, I want to I learn to, to share the gospel like you. I want to do evangelism like you. And this guy worked on the train, and uh, Mr. Moody looked to him and said, oh, that's interesting. Tell me, where do you work on the train? And he began to tell him a little about the train. He says, so your coworker, you have some coworkers there that you work with? And he said, yeah, there's an engineer there with me. He says, does your engineer know Jesus? And he said, I don't know. He says, you're not ready. Because you, you don't have a compassion for the people that are right in front of you, the people that are right next to you, the people that work around you. If your heart isn't bleeding for them, then me teaching you some tactics isn't gonna solve the problem. God needs to save our tear ducts before he saves the words of our lips and gives us words to speak. Friends, if we don't love people, it's not gonna help us to have the truth of the gospel. It's not gonna help others and those around us. So here's what I want us to see. We can't get to verse seven until we've done verses one through six. Paul goes back and you notice where he starts. He says, first of all. When he says, first of all, he's not talking about kind of an order of timing. He's really talking about priority. The, the, the greatest priority, the thing that's at the top of our list, the thing we need to do first is what? He says, we wanna pray. I urge you that you would pray. Friends, is prayer ever first in your life? Like, let's just be honest. Like how many of us go, and if, if anyone looked at, kind of stepped back and looked at my life, that how many of us would we say, this is the first thing that drives and compels our actions and who we are and what we're about. And yet Paul says, the first thing I urge you to is to pray. And the language he gives us, he gives us kind of a, a kind of restates several things. And really these words are somewhat interchangeable, but they give you a little bit of a different picture as what it's about. He talks about supplications. Supplications are asking for something, asking for God to move, asking for uh, God to supply your need. Uh, he talks about intercession. Intercession is a word that has to do with uh, asking a superior or interceding to a superior on behalf of another. So kind of going to your boss and saying, hey, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna intercede for my brother over here and, and have something go well for him. So you're praying on behalf of someone else. Prayer is just addressing God, talking to God. It's not some hyper-spiritual thing necessarily. It's just you communicating to the God of the universe. And then Thanksgiving is an expression of gratitude. Thanksgiving is an important thing. It's, it's a word that's a little bit distinct here. And really, the thing I'd encourage you in is gratitude does, has such a power to change the way in which we look at things that when we live in a world that looks like it's in utter chaos, Thanksgiving and gratitude have a way of grounding us and thanking us for the way God has answered promises in the past, reminding us that God is present with us in, in the current day, and, and also reminding us of the promises that we have for the future. And so Thanksgiving kind of grounds us and, and ori reorients our day. But who is it Paul says we're to pray for? He says, pray for all those who are in high places. He's really talking about those who had political influence and civic leaders in that world. He, he talks about kings in his day. And we don't, we're not a people with kings, but we're, we're definitely a people with rulers. And we've got those that, uh, that, 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 that rule over us as in kind of civic or political roles. But you notice he doesn't say pray for Democrats or pray for Republicans. He doesn't say pray for those whose voting record looks similar to yours. He doesn't say pray for those whom you agree with. In fact, in Paul's day, it's interesting because the kings and the rulers and the emperors were actually very violent towards the Christian. They were very much persecuting the Christians. This was not far from the time when Nero was lighting Christians as candles to, to light his dinner party. 
And so this is not a time when the rulers represented the Christians very well. And yet he says, pray for them. Not pray against them, pray for them. And what is one of the reasons? He's pray for them that we may be able to live a life of peace and quiet and go about our business of the mission of God here in our world. So pray that we may be able to operate as we ought to. But he also says, pray for whom? All people. So don't just pray for the rulers who can make life easier for you, but pray for the good of all people. You saw this in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 29, when uh, the people of God were in exile. And he says, pray to the Lord on behalf of the people that their city may flourish because this is where you call home. You see the, this pattern come up over and over in scripture of us going and praying for the people around us. But it's not enough just to pray. Look at the results that our prayers are supposed to, are supposed to produce and the end that they call us to. It says, pray so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And we're called to live well amongst the city. So we, we, want, to, we, want, to, we want prayers of compassion but we also want to have Christ-like presence in our city. We want to be a people that's, that's typified or personifies Christ-like presence within our city. And so Paul says that as we pray, we're called to live well, that we're called to live a life of integrity, that we're not to be people who are tossed around by all the winds of our world in the same way in which uh, the people of our world are. But let me ask you this, in a, in a, in a city, or not a city, but in, a, in an age where everyone's outraged about everything, what does it look like for us to live a peaceful and quiet life? We, we live, I mean, I mean that's, that's what our day is being called, that we are kind of the age of outrage, that everyone's hacked off about everything all the time. Everyone's coming undone. Everything, you know, it's like this guy says, oh, look, something good happened. And they go, it's not really good. You know, it's like you can't have anything that is lifted up as, as wow, here's something really good on our day without someone shooting down and showing why it's also not good enough. And so you have this kind of edge to the world that's this give and take and this constant battle and fighting of, over all these things. And Paul says that we're called to live a quiet and peaceful life, godly and dignified in every way. Godly means that we're devoted to Christ and to godliness. Meaning that, that we're, our hearts are set apart for God and our lives are typified by godly kinds of actions. And so it's both our attitudes and our behaviors are God-oriented or God-focused. So that's who we're to be. We're also called to be dignified. It's interesting, this word dignified is really talking about respectable. That when people look at us, they look and go, I mean, that's a respectable dude or that's a respectable gal. That, that's someone I can have some respect for. Even if I don't agree with them all the time, I look at them and go, you know, there's a dignified person that carries themselves in a godly way and in a respectable way. See, one of the things that we wanna do as a church is we want to live out and personify the life of Christ in the midst of our city. The reality is most people won't trust the message of Christ until they trust a Christian. They're not gonna trust your words until they can trust your life. Until they see that you're a person who's, who's godly in your own life and respectable towards others and that you love others and you're praying for others and your heart is compassionate towards others, they're not likely to trust your message of the gospel. And that's what Paul wants us to understand is before we can get to verse seven and preach the message of the good news of the gospel, we've got to first of all, pray. You can't hate people you pray for. Pray for all people. And then live amongst people in a quiet, peaceful way, godly and respectable towards all so that you earn entrance for the message of God. 
that they might listen to the things that we have. We want them to observe our, our, our lives and the way in which we live. Now, part of what that means is, husbands, you've got to treat your wives with gentleness and kindness and goodness. Your neighbor is not going to listen to you talk about Jesus if he hears you through the walls of your house screaming at your wife. Ladies, you've got to be respectful towards your husband. People in our city are not going to listen to your message about Christ and his grace and his goodness if they hear you constantly harping on your kids and harping on your husband. There's nothing appetizing or appealing about your life. If, if you as an employer are known as a slave driver who's constantly riding and, and driving and pushing those that you work for in a way that's unhelpful and unfair, and you're, and you're constantly harping on them and uh, making fun of them and calling them out in unhealthy ways, they're not likely to go, hey, tell me about your Jesus, right? So we're called to live lives that are respectable, that are godly, that are dignified in the midst of our city because that opens up entrance for us to then speak the truth of God's love for them in a way that they might actually hear it. So as we get down into this, let's go down to verses three and four. Verses three and four, we've kind of seen this call to prayer and this call to prayer isn't just to pray for physical things and other things, but ultimately it's connected to the salvation that God brings in the mission of God to the universal mission of God in our world. And so Paul is gonna push us in that direction, verses three and four. And he says, this is good. It's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. When he says God, our Savior, oftentimes this is kind of a different title for God. Oftentimes Jesus is called our Savior, but here he's orienting it in God's initial kind of plan for the world as the sovereign God of the universe, he's saying God initiated this plan of salvation. It's God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. God's nature is to save. It's a title that he gives there. And what it's saying is God has mercy on all types of people. So uh, one of the things that, uh, for those of you that were here last week, as we talked about kind of Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, and the God's sovereign plan, and uh, we're, we're not gonna get into predestination, election, all kinds of stuff today. But I do just wanna say, sometimes you look at this and you go, uh, some of you may say, well, how is it God desires all people to be saved? But you get back in Romans 9, you get to Ephesians 1, you see these other things. Here's what, what Paul's saying in this passage. He's saying, really, this is kind of, God desires, in, in his general will, he desires all people to repent and come to the, the, come to the truth. He desires all types of people. And it says that he's gonna save people of all nations, that all are welcome, all are invited in. And so in the general will of God, it's his desire that people would come to trust him. Um, it, but that doesn't really deny his election and other things. Another conversation, another sermon for another day. But for those of you that were asking, I just wanted to deal with that real quick. So as he talks about God desires all people to be saved, here's what I want you to see. God in his desire means he has mercy towards all types of people, meaning Christ's provision for us is sufficient for all people. It's sufficient for those whom he's elected. It's sufficient and adequate for all. It's interesting here, the thing you see here is there's, there's two things. And this, this is a key verse for us in understanding how uh, 1 Timothy 1 fits with 1 Timothy 2. Notice what he says, God desires all people to be saved and to what? Come to a knowledge of the truth. See, these are not mutually exclusive things. God's desire for people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth are really one and the same. 
To be saved, he's saying, is to come to an understanding of the gospel, to understand who God is, what he did for you, the fact that you can't save yourself, that Christ came and died for you upon a cross and resurrected on the third day. And by his grace, you are welcomed in. And if you just put your faith in him, you'll be received as a child of God if you believe in him. That's the gospel message. And there's an objective body of information that you have to own and understand in order to, to truly embrace the gospel. And that is part of what it means to be saved. And so in some sense, these two things, to be saved, to come to knowledge and truth, are one and the same thing. That those two go together. God's desire to save includes the only way of salvation, which is to come to the knowledge of the truth. That is the means by which God brings about our salvation. So as you think about this passage, to me, this is the, kind of the, the crux of what we have to do in our world and, and how we're to understand these things is that there is an exclusive message. You notice it's uh, to come to the knowledge of, it's, it's, there's a, pro, a pronoun there, it says the truth, or an article there, I'm sorry, an article there that says the truth, meaning the one truth. The, the, the to be saved is to come to the knowledge of the one truth. And notice the next verse, verse five, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. There's only one way for us to be reconnected to God, and that's through the, the one mediator of Jesus. And so there's an exclusivity of the gospel that says, this is the only way of salvation known to men. But you also know there's an inclusivity of God's compassion that we have to hold those together, that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So let me ask you this. Should we pray for kings from whom we, have, we derive no benefit? Sure. Should we, uh, should we pray for friends with whom we share no moral ground? Absolutely. Should we have compassion for coworkers who seem to make our lives hard? Yep. Any of you know those guys? Like if you have a job, you know one of those, unless you're self-employed. And then that may actually be worse sometimes. <laughs> I mean, like that guy's really hard to deal with, right? Like, the, we, we can find ways to have difficulty with anyone. Should we pray for those whom give us difficulty? Absolutely, because God's primary concern is the salvation of all people. And Paul is saying that no nation or race is excluded from God's salvation, but every person is equally on, on equal ground and invited in if they will simply turn to the Lord and trust him. It means out of love, we should be deeply concerned and compassionate about the salvation of everyone. So you get to verses five and six. And in what we see is that, that, that uh, Paul says there's one God and one mediator between God and man. Why do you need a mediator? You need a mediator in life because you've been somehow isolated or separated from someone else, right? That, that somehow a gap has opened up between you and another party, and now you, those two parties are at odds. And because they're at odds, you need a mediator to come in and try to smooth things over to bring those two parties back together. That's what a mediator does. And so there's one mediator between whom? God and humanity. That, that somehow God and humanity, because of our sin, have become separated and isolated. We've become distanced. We've become separated from him in a way that we need someone to come and mediate and create a way for us to be reconnected, for him can create a way for us to come back together. And it says there's one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. Why does it call Jesus the man? Because we also know Jesus was divine, and so Jesus was fully, fully God, and yet he's fully man. Why does he emphasize man here? As we talked about this last week, right? Do you remember the phrase uh, that we learned together, substitutionary atonement? That there had to be a substitute, a human substitute that put themselves in our place and that person had to pay for our sins. 
that it had to be a human being so that Jesus could stand in my place. Jesus had to be one of us so that he could represent us, so that he could be a substitute for us. It had to be a human person. So here Paul emphasizes the man Christ Jesus who did what? Gave himself as a ransom. What's a ransom? A ransom's a payment to restore someone else back, that I'm going to make a payment to this party in order that this party might be free to be reunited to the other party. So Jesus Christ was a mediator and he gave himself as the payment or the ransom in order to rescue us and reunite us to our Heavenly Father. Paul's telling us that this universal access to God's salvation comes through one act of redemption and the gospel message about what Jesus did for us as our ransom. It's interesting when you, this phrase ransom, that uh, there's another part of that. It says that he gave himself as a ransom. This was a voluntary act. This was nothing that was hoisted upon Jesus. There's nothing that was forced upon Jesus. There's nothing that Jesus was dragged into. Jesus went in full with, with eyes open, knowing full well what he was going to get into. In fact, Jesus himself told us this was going to happen. Mark 10 says, for even the Son of Man, and that's Jesus' title for himself, for even the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Ransoms really, there's this idea of this kind of combination of two words. It kind of means instead of or on behalf of. So it's a payment that you make on behalf of another in order to restore them. And Jesus said, this is why I came. I came not that the world would serve me, but that I would serve the world and be a ransom and rescue them. Other places in the New Testament, Galatians, it says, Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. Galatians 2 says, I've been, uh, I, the life I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 5, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Titus 2, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us. See, this is the great exchange of Christianity, that we couldn't save ourselves, but Christ gave himself as a payment in order voluntarily to restore us and rescue us. It's a voluntary act of self-sacrifice. Jesus died where I should have died. Jesus lived a righteous life where I could never live. Jesus conquered sin and death where I would have fallen short. Jesus rose again where I would have stayed in the grave. Jesus gave me, made me what I could never have become on my own because of his goodness and his love for me. Friends, here's the question I think this text asks. Christ gave himself for you. What, do you, what, will you. what will you give yourself for others? See, one of the things we say, going back to that Mark 10 passage, Christ came not to be served, uh, I'm sorry, not, yeah, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And we're called as his followers to serve others and give so that, other, and give so that others may also live. So let me ask you this. What do we do with this message? Um, awful lot of content. What we see is this, let's go back and think through the progression. Paul grounds everything in the theology of the gospel, that Christ is a mediator that reunites us to God, that he himself paid for our sins. Because of that, um, that was really grounded in the desire, the will of God, that all people would be saved. Because of that theology, Paul says, we should pray. We should pray for all. We should have compassion and love for all. Because of that, we should then live in the, in the midst of, our, of the people of our city. And having done so, having prayed, having lived in a Christ-like life in the midst of the city, having grounded all this in the truth of the gospel, then we need to present the gospel. We need to tell people about Jesus. 
And that gets to verse 7. You come back to the end and Paul says, I'm a preacher. I'm, I'm one who's called to the outsider to tell them about the message of God's love for them and his grace for them. So we're called to do the same thing. Uh, so what do we do? Um, here's how I want us to apply this. First of all, let's go back to the priority. Paul says, first of all, meaning the priority is what? I urge you to pray. So I want to call you to pray. I want to ask you to pray. Um, and we're going to give you, I'm going to give you a few specific ways in which we're going to do that. But let me ask you this. Um, do you find yourself spontaneously and continuously praying for the lost in our city? Do you find yourself everywhere you go kind of accidentally tripping into telling people about Jesus? Like, is that the natural course of your life that you walk through the grocery store and you're like, oh, Jesus, save that person. Jesus, would you reveal yourself to that person? Would you help us know them? And then you begin to build relationships with them naturally and you begin to go across the street to your neighbors and it's just completely a natural organic thing that you just find yourself going, wow, I can't believe it. I'm praying and telling people about Jesus again. Any of you say that's your life? Uh, Because if it is, I just like, let me stay out of the way. You just keep going. You do your thing. I'll just tell you, my life is not like that. That's just not the way my life goes. I tend to be a little selfish. I tend to be a little self-focused. I tend to work on my own days. And it's like, dude, my kids are enough for me to handle in my own life. And I'm just trying to get through with all the things that I've got on my schedule. If I don't have some sort of a plan, some sort of a process, some sort of a system or mechanism to get me out of myself, I never find my, my, my way into those other things. Uh, this week, my, my kids were at school and there was, uh, or I don't know if it was this week, sometime recently, but my, the athletic director was giving a talk and he was talking about eating healthy and they joking, jokingly, someone threw out in the audience that Jake Lawrence eats really healthy. So the, uh, the athletic director asked, he said, well, Jake, tell us why you eat healthy. And he said, well, he said, I, I wanna do really well in my sport and my mom makes me. Um, so th- there, was, there was a goal of something he wanted to do but the little, my little, little uh, son also needed, he's not that little anymore, are you, dude? My, my quickly growing up son uh, is, is wanting to do well in his sport. He's wanting to thrive. There's a value, something he's committed to, but he also needs a little outside encouragement. He needs a plan. He needs someone to kind of manage the system to make it happen. So let me just encourage you. Can, uh, sometimes I, I know when we begin to talk about these things, people kind of check out and go, man, I don't know if I'm gonna jump in all in on this. Can I just push on you a little and say, man, you may need a plan, you may need some things to help you get out of yourself to really begin to do the things Paul's calling us to do. So let me just give you a couple things, practical ways you can do this. First is, one of the things we talk about here is we talk about your first five people that you're committed to pray for. Um, would you write down the names of five people and, and put them on a card, keep them on your dashboard, keep them in your bathroom, keep them in your Bible, keep them somewhere around you on your phone and make it the, the front of your phone when you pull your phone up wherever it is, somewhere in front of you, that you would keep them in front of you, that you just would put the, the first five people that you're gonna pray for. And it, and it doesn't mean that our whole city's not, not important. We wanna, we wanna pray for all. But I know that if, if, you, if I tell you to pray for all, you're gonna be so overwhelmed, you're never gonna do that. So pray for one, what you, can, what you wanna pray for all. But let's, let's just start with, what are your, who are your first five friends? And this week, would you take some time and just write down the names of five people and say, I'm gonna commit to pray for these five people that they would come to know Jesus. Could be neighbors, could be coworkers, could be going by the same barista all the time, could be uh, teammates, could be classmates, could be anyone around you. But would you just commit to pray for your first five and write those names down? 
Secondly, uh, we've got a worship, uh, a vision prayer and worship night next Sunday night. And that's just going to be a time we set aside and we're going to invite you. We're going to come back in here on Sunday evening next week. And we just want to seek the Lord. We want to pray together. And so we're doing that individually, but we want to come and we just want to pray. And so I'm going to ask you to come back next Sunday night uh, and we're going to pray together and seek the Lord as a part of our, uh, part of our church family. And then uh, the following week, October 13th through 16th, um, we're going to ask people to just take a day to pray and fast. That you would, in your own time, and I think it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, we decided not to go into fall break because none of y'all are doing that on fall break. Um, so we decided we'd go Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. But just ask that we as a church family would just commit to fasting and to praying and to asking the Lord to move in our lives, to move in the lives of our first five, to move in the lives of our city, to draw people to himself, that people would be saved. Um, does that make sense? Three things. Individually, you've got five people you're praying for. Corporately, we're gonna to come together next Sunday night and we're gonna pray and seek the Lord together uh, and, seek, and just pray for our city. And then that week, we're gonna individually just kind of as a, as a group corporately, uh, but individually living it out, we're gonna just fast and pray together and ask the Lord to be at work in, in our midst. So that's how we wanna live that out this week. Um, let me pray for us as we close. Father, I thank you that you have given us your word. I thank you for the wisdom that is there. I thank you that you sent your son in order to save us. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you that you desired all to be saved. Father, I thank you that you have opened the eyes of our hearts that we might know your grace. And Lord, we just ask on behalf of others, God, would you open the eyes of their heart that they might believe? Would you give them faith? Would you bestow upon them the gift of insight and understanding of your grace and your gospel? Father, would you quicken their heart by your Holy Spirit? Would you regenerate and breathe new life into, Father, anyone in this room who does not know you? Father, for those who are our teammates, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, for those in our city, God, would you draw people to yourself? Father, this time next year, would we rejoice at those who have been baptized and those who have been saved? Father, would you, would you give us compassion for those around us? Would you cause us to feel deeply for those who are lost like sheep without a shepherd? Father, stir us for them. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.